0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Academic Life Channel here on New Books Network. I'm your host, Dr. Dana Malone. Today, we'll be talking to Dr. Laura Gail Lunsford about her chapter, Mapping Your Mentor Network, in the newly released book, Charting Your Path to Full, A Guide for Women Associate Professors.
1: Laura, welcome to the show. Dana, I'm delighted to be here, and I get to talk about one of my favorite subjects. <laughs>
0: that's always fun and exciting. So um, I'm looking forward to our conversation as well. I, I was hoping you could start um, by telling us a bit about yourself.
1: That's always such a big question, but I will, uh, I'll, I'll say some relevant pertinent things that, that just give a little insight into my thinking and maybe understanding why mentoring is also important to me. I, um, I'm the first in my family to attend college. No one told me I could stop after my undergraduate degree, so I kept on Kept on going. I'm from the South, so I'm a Southerner, although I'm told I'm a fast speaking Southerner. And I spent most of my life in North Carolina and thought I was destined to become an electrical engineer. And so attended university on full scholarship and did that for a couple of years and then suddenly realized I liked solving problems with people, not things, and switched to psychology and have have never looked back. I think I came to mentoring because When I thought about um, how much my career has transitioned, I was an academic administrator for a long time. Actually, my first job out of college was living in the first residential public high school for gifted and talented students. It was in North Carolina. And so it gave me a lot of insight into development, how people develop. I'm very interested in that. How do we get together? What does flourishing look like? When I look at my career, those have always been the ties that draw me to um, the things that I've been doing. But after a while, I was uh, found myself running a big national merit scholarship at NC State University called the Park Scholarships. And I was setting up mentoring programs, and I had a master's, and faculty said, you know, you really, you're doing work that is PhD work. You need to get your PhD. And so I did that, and my interest was really on, you know, why did mentoring work so well for some of these gifted and talented students? And not so well for others of them. So I'm sure we'll talk a little bit about how I went from that to looking at mentoring writ at large, and certainly for women in the academy, um, as we, we talk in the next few minutes. The other thing that might be interesting is I also have a black belt in Shotokan karate. And I ended up in that because you had to take a number of physical education courses when I was an undergraduate, and at that time, there was no Internet. there was you know, none of this business. You had to wait in line. So I got in the shortest line, and it ended up being a karate class, and it was all girls class. And I ended up studying it my whole life, and the karate teacher really became a mentor to me as well. So I, I understand it personally, and how transformative those relationships can be. Not only do I study it, and in my spare time I love cycling. I saw that you uh, like cycling when I lifted up and kayaking. So we have a house at the coast of North Carolina. So fortunately, we're able to spend a lot of time at the ocean too.
0: Mm. I am also an ocean person. So we have a lot of uh, connections there. Um, wonderful. Well, thank you so much for sharing a bit of your story with us. Um, and I, I just want to note for listeners, if they don't know, um, I I have had Vicki Baker on and Vicki is the author of... Um, uh, charting your path to full. And when I was thinking about, you know, other episodes that I wanted to do, I, I really, uh, I thought about this chapter because, um, Christina and I's original, Christina is my co-host. Our original, um, title for this channel was the way we originally were conceiving of it was the mentor channel is actually was our first, um, one of our first draft titles for this, this, um, channel because we really um, value mentoring as well and our own experiences personally and, and the opportunities we've had to do that um, professionally, like, you know, as part of our work. And that's kind of how we conceive of this channel in a lot of ways that even if we have great mentors, sometimes you don't have mentors in every area that you need. And so we try to fill that gap a bit with um, this channel. And so it just made sense to me that I wanted to have you come on and talk, um, to spend a whole episode talking about your chapter because um, you know, trying to get a whole book in one episode is really challenging. And so um, we didn't get to spend a lot of time on, on the mentoring piece of of that book. Um, and so I wanted, I wanted to invite Laura on to, to unpack that. And I'm really excited because I feel like we can dig deeper into just this one topic, um, in, in the time we have together. So I just wanted to p- kind of put that out there, um, for listeners in case they don't know, and, um, they can obviously go in and, and find the, um, the episode where we, where we unpack the whole book, um, charting your path to full and how this mentoring, and I'm sure we'll talk um, some about that here today about how the the mentoring network fits into that. Um, But um, maybe talk to us a little bit about what inspired you to write this chapter.
1: Well, I met Vicki Baker back at a conference when we were both, I was presenting my dissertation research. Uh, She had finished graduate school a little ahead of me. I think she was an assistant professor then at Albion. So we met at a professional conference and found pretty quickly, just hit it off that we had a lot of similar interests. Um, at the time, then I was at the University of Arizona, um, and she was at Albion College, and we just started collaborating on things we liked, and one of those was about uh, faculty development, and I'm very interested in the mentoring piece, so we just completed a big study of liberal arts colleges, and Vicki said, you know, Laura, we, we've we interviewed all these faculty administrators, and I think there's a real niche for academic um, work on associate professors, specifically women. And she talked me into um, contributing a chapter to that book on mentoring because I too had seen there's a lot on early career, um, formal mentoring initiatives for new associate, I mean, assistant professors, occasionally, some things um, for people related to leadership at mid-career, but really very little on that important transition. And we know that mentoring is so important at transition periods because that's when people have these needs where mentors can be quite valuable and provide a sounding board. So I have to say, Vicky talked me into it, but she didn't have to try very hard because it's a topic um, that I, I too saw there was a real need for.
0: Um. One of the first things that struck me about the book charting your path to full, um, is the versatility of it. And Vicki and I spoke about that in our conversation. And I find this to be equally true of your chapter as well, um, within it. And, um, though you wrote it for women associate professors, it offers so much for any professional in academe, whether faculty, staff, or administration, um, in that a lot of what you offer in the chapter could be adapted to varying positions and levels within the academy, um, have you found that to be so? And, and do you agree with that?
1: That's an interesting observation because uh, I do agree with it. And I find that even when I first started this work on mentoring, I used to sit with my doctoral advisor and we would ponder great questions around mentoring. Like, are there commonalities across disciplines? Or is it really different? Um, And I've come to believe through my own just practice and scholarship that there are, are some universal elements or processes for mentoring that apply to different settings, but the way that it becomes specific then is, well, what are those actual activities or behaviors at these different levels or different positions? And certainly how I provided a framework in the chapter, I think it's a great observation. You know, Assessing your new reality is sort of the first step. Well, that could be true for an assistant professor just as much as it could be for associate or, or full or, or anyone sort of moving to a new transition where the rules are a little bit different. So that's a great observation.
0: Um, Thank you. I'm glad, I'm glad that that resonates with you. Cause I, I can see so much uh, potential for, you know, even folks outside faculty positions and how, you know, um, you know, they could, they could use this, um, information in this in this chapter um, specifically. One of the reasons I love your chapter in particular is that it addresses a known but often unspoken aspect of our professional lives, like finding mentors. And, and what I mean by that is most of us understand the value of having mentors, um, but how we go about finding them and maximizing the benefit of those relationships is not um, really openly talked about. Um, And you address this idea, I think, in the beginning of the chapter when you say, quote, most everyone asserts that mentoring will just happen and that being more intentional feels, well, distasteful. Although usually later in the conversation, they will acknowledge the presence of poor mentors and sometimes even a tormentor end quote. So I love this because it speaks to the fact that mentoring, like so many aspects of academe that are important, even vital to our success are kind of left to happenstance and are often not openly encouraged or unpacked. Um, and we're just sort of supposed to know how to go about these things. So as we get started uh, with this conversation, could you tell us how you define mentoring and what distinguishes, um, great mentors?
1: Another topic I love to talk about, um, And I think the literature is really helpful here when when we talk about how to define it. You know, and I I go to research conferences where I just sit around with other people. You'd probably like to come to one of those. And we talk for three days about what's the difference between mentoring and coaching and advising and supervising or executive coaching and reverse mentoring and on and on. And I think at the end of the day, uh, what really matters is that people have a common understanding in their organization about what mentoring is and isn't. And from my work, and the work on mentoring, I would say it's, it's not a friend. Sometimes people say, well, it's just providing that confidence building and listening. Well, we have a word for that. And that's called friendship. So it certainly involves that personal support, but there also needs to be professional support. And these are things like uh, lifting someone up, challenging them to take on challenging assignments, helping them process uh, where they want to go, what their goals are professionally. So I think in mentoring, you need both of those things, both that professional and personal support. And it's also a two-way street. I find, especially in the United States, we we tend to think of it as unidirectional. I, I often start a lot of my talks and workshops just asking people to provide their own definition of mentoring. And they say something like guiding other people or uh, listening to other people. And it's, they, it's this unidirectional notion and, and it really isn't. It takes both people. They both are changing. They're both learning. Um, they're Europeans, Canadians, Australians have much more of what I would call a developmental view on mentoring. And I think in an academe, especially where we have this emphasis on learning, um, it's quite relevant there that it's bi-directional and it really has this personal and professional support in terms of definition. You asked me a second part of the question. What um, was
0: it? Oh, just talking about, so that was kind of like how you define mentoring, but um, also what distinguishes great mentors. And we're, we're going to dive into that a little bit more. So don't feel like you have to go all into that, but just kind of introduce that idea. Cause you kind of talked about the tormentors and that, that quote. And so what um, you know, what makes, what makes somebody a great mentor versus, you know, just maybe a friend or.
1: Well, I, I became interested in what is great versus not so great, and like all relationships, you know, a lot of relationships we have are just, you know, they're average, they're okay. Um, but when you think about people that you love to be around, that really transform you, that make you feel good, I became very interested in. Well, does that happen in mentoring? What does that look like? Um, and then, what about the people who make you feel awful? Fortunately, there's a lower rate of that, uh, but unfortunately, it exists, and it does exist uh, in in the academy. And I, I want to write a book on tormentors. mentors. I'm collecting stories, by the way, so I invite people to share them. No one wants their name attached to them. This is part of my dilemma on the tormentor mentor book is how do you cite all that? Um, but there's some pretty horrific examples mm-hmm. of faculty members, you know, co-opting people's work and manipulating and, and uh, derailing people. So it really runs that continuum and when we, we can think about it, when we think about people we like to be around and don't like to be around. We, we innately have this sense of what great mentoring is. And one of my favorite books that got me thinking a lot about this is Harriet uh, Zuckerman, who wrote about Nobel laureates. Um, have you ever heard of, of this work?
0: I have, not, I have
1: not. So she interviewed in the 70s every living Nobel laureate wow. that she could find. And she was interested in lineage and how things get passed down in science, but what she re- found was that about mentoring, and that they provided incredible mentoring about how to ask the right research questions and how to tackle a difficult problem. And then they would talk about the personal support. you know they they sort of became family members, you know their own students would they would celebrate holidays with them and there were these lineages, and, and she called it evocative environments. So some Nobel laureates were at sort of average institutions. I mean, many were at spectacular you know, institutions you would, that you would think of, but some weren't. And they still produced a Nobel laureates themselves among their own uh, students. And she became very interested in w- what's happening there. And that's what really got me thinking about what does it look like from an from an optimal perspective um, in terms of the dimensions? And I think we can define it. It's not just being satisfied. I'm always interested as a psychologist. But what does satisfaction mean? You know, how can we define that in terms terms of behaviors? And and I think we can. Hmm.
0: I really like the uh, the bi directional focus there because I think you know um, anyone who's you know really. Um, open themselves up to the te- you know to the te- to teaching and learning i you know we all learn so much from our students it's not you know it's definitely not a one way relationship um every time we teach a class and uh we we can learn so much more about our our topic area and even how our pedagogy and how to how to teach better and how to how to you know navigate that better from our students and so that's um i think it's interesting that you you know you point out that um uh, bidirectional versus unidirectional um it just makes sense and in, in in any relationship really um, well, Dana, you,
1: you saying that also makes me think of, I think, a really important point that we've not quite got to yet on mentoring, but we have on teaching. It's a skill and it can mm. be developed. And certainly oh, yeah. some people are more naturally good at it than others, just like teaching. But this idea that, you know, you just sort of magically know how to be a mentor is completely false. And um, you can learn to be great. hmm. Well, I mean, you know, you do
0: psychology, like relationships are a skill too, right? Like we all right. need relationship skills. Like we don't all come out just knowing how to do all this perfectly. Um, and so, you know, there's so much relationally, um, that is, you know, that is also a skill and in getting and continuing to get better at it with practice and life, right? That's life experience. Um, I think that's uh that's a that's a great point though, um, as well about that. This is a skill to develop. Um, and I think um, well i want to I want to have a longer quote here. I want to read um, and and kind of get into this because I think it also gets into perceptions of um, mentoring and maybe how that will work. Um, so um, it's a bit a, a longer of a quote, but I think it's instructive because it helps us frame how mentoring is viewed at different levels of the institution. So this is from page one thirty nine and you state, quote, in both my research and consulting practice across the country, I find that institutions, one support mentoring of undergrads. Two, believe that graduate students need mentoring, but will ask for it when they need it. Three, believe that faculty members will ask for what they need, and if they don't make it, then they didn't deserve to be here in the first place. Four, focus mentoring support for faculty members on early career individuals. And five, need the National Science Foundation Advance Grant to consider formal mentoring for women faculty members. And then you say parenthetically, and I um, and here i exaggerate only slightly end quote <laughs> so i realize there's a lot wrapped up in that quote but i wanted to highlight it because i i think that it speaks to what you're finding by way of perceptions and beliefs about mentoring at varying levels in the academy and and i think that's important to unpack because we do have a you know a broad audience base and so there's there's you know people across the board here and so i think like i said that you kind of address this at different areas of what are the perceptions around mentoring and how that's going to happen at at um, in the academy. So could you kind of unpack that a little bit for us?
1: Yes. And I, you know, when I wrote this, I was a little afraid at first I had to talk with Vicki about it. I said, I'm, I might, I'm at risk of offending people uh, with some of this, but I think that, um, you know, when you talk to people, everybody universally sees that undergraduates want mentoring, warrant that. And in fact, some schools have it written in their mission statements, strategic plans, and and even their tenure and uh, documents and promotion documents. When you start to talk about graduate students, we we sort of build it in, especially for doctoral education because you have a, an advisor who's supposed to provide some mentoring. You know, there's a lot of other parts of graduate education. Um, I've been working recently with uh, medical profession, for example, and uh, they use different words, trainees, and, and they try to build it in and, and somehow they do uh, residencies and internships. So it exists at these different levels, but there starts to be a sense that, well, you're more capable to ask for what you need. And yet when I've talked with graduate students, they're often, they don't know what they don't know, or they're afraid to ask questions because they don't want to be perceived as incompetent. And so uh, they need support knowing, okay, it's okay to ask these questions and here's how you can go about that. Uh, But by the time you get to faculty, and at some level, I've heard these comments so many times, and in fact, I've worked with a lot of faculty mentoring programs, where the mentors really believe that they need help, they'll ask me, and then you interview or talk to their mentees who are saying, well, I'm I'm not really sure I should go to them with this, or, um, you know, if it's a big enough problem, or they might not even realize that it's something they need some mentoring help on. And then, when faculty don't make it, and often it is uh, underrepresented faculty members or women, you know, there's this belief we can always explain the one person in our department. Well, they were never a good fit. But I've looked at a lot of data, and there's certainly departments who do a better job than others. And so I, I've just really stopped believing that it's the person that is situated there and it's, it's more situated in the department and organization. Um, when institutions do focus on faculty mentoring, and the reason you would do formal mentoring, by the way, is because it wouldn't naturally otherwise happen. And when people are different, have different identities, maybe have really different backgrounds, that's when we're less likely to get together. You know, we tend to want to be with people who seem like us or or share similar uh, backgrounds. And so making sure uh, formal mentoring is needed when that maybe won't happen naturally. And so there's been a focus, especially at institutions who have a lot of attrition, um, or who are worried about supporting assistant professors to publish more or, you know, whatever their goals are, the institution, they'll have it for early career. But the National Science Foundation is really what every time I've looked at places that are doing it well, it really took the advanced grant, which is focused on women uh, to, to have an intentional focus on, on women in particular and looking across ranks and even at um, the route to or pipeline to leadership opportunities, which for faculty members means you need to move to full professor. It'd be very unusual to move past a department head, or maybe you might become a program director as a mid-level rank associate rank, but it would be rare to move past that unless you um, are, are at that full rank. And there's not necessarily, I mean, the data speak for themselves. We're doing a lot better, especially in science, to get female assistant professors professors but it's still about 30 percent across all ranks so clearly some ranks are new disciplines are worse than others in terms of of women so as you go up as you there longer there's just this belief oh it's just happening and, and successful people will figure it out well perhaps but that's a big waste it seems to me when we take so much time to find faculty members to treat it in that way
0: yeah yeah and i um to circle back to what you said about graduate students, I've found that in my own, I teach in a, in a master's program and, um, I'm we're wrapping up this week and we, I, I do a lot of reflection, uh, you know, stuff in, uh, posts and such in my, in my course. And, um, a couple of the students who are graduating said, you know, I'm really glad I took this at the end, um, um, at the end, this class at the end of my program, because I wouldn't, and I have a fairly intensive class for the program. And they said, I would not have been, I wouldn't have been comfortable in the beginning of my program asking for the help I needed mm. and the feedback. And I I mean I and I repeat it all the time to my students, if you have questions, reach out. Please, you know, let me know. And I build support in so many places. And even just this morning, it's funny, as I was reading that, those comments, I I was thinking, wow, I, I need to be cognizant of the fact that they really, you know, I even though I put it out there all the time, that it is such a hurdle for them to get to the place of actually reaching out and saying, I don't understand this, I need help, or is this clear, or is this, you know, um, so, so I resonate very much with, with what you feel like you're hearing in terms of graduate students. Cause even just within the classroom where, you know, of course they would, <laughs> to me, I'm like, well, of course, I mean, you know, I'm the, I'm the professor, I'm the faculty, you would, you would, you know, ask me, um, they, they don't always feel comfortable. So thinking about that, even in where there's no structure really for, for a mentor scenario, are they gonna, are they going to step up and, and ask for that? So I, I think that's really important to acknowledge. Um, you know, also in the chapter, you talk about um, doing an environmental scan. Could you explain that a bit and talk about how it relates to building a mentoring uh, network?
1: Yes, I find that women in particular are not very good at uh, looking around and sort of assessing, you know, what are the resources here, Uh, what are what are my goals, and where I might have some gaps. And an environmental scan is especially once you become an associate professor. You know, yay, you you got the prize, right? You figured it out as an assistant professor. But no matter the institution type, the rules change to get to full, and unless you really just sort of sit there for a little bit and kind of look around and go, okay, um, what are these new rules? What direction? Because people often have a real opportunity to think, do I want to stay on this course? Do I want to change directions? So thinking quite intentionally about what's that next step? Where do I want to take my research or teaching, or might I want to move into an academic leadership role? Thinking really clearly about that is important. And I suggest some questions. Um, People might even want to to ask of themselves, of uh, to scan their resources and assets, things like, you know, what professional affiliations do they have? Um, I know when I moved along the ranks, I, I became very interested in writing books. And one of my peers, uh, who was sort of a peer mentor to me, suggested, you know, there's an organization on textbook authors. So I, when I did my environmental scan that year said, you know, maybe I, there's something to that and I should look into that group. And, and now I'm, I'm quite active with them and I've found them to be really helpful. So thinking about those professional associations, um, who at their own institution has a position that they might like to have one day. Um, what do they need to learn? We often don't always think about that again when we get at mid career, you know, maybe there's some, new learning that's required. Even when I became department chair at my current institution, I mean, I teach leadership. I've studied that a lot, but I asked as part of my acceptance of the job is that they send me to a, a leadership uh, for department chair specifically. And so thinking about is there, are there some things about that role that might really help me and network with others to, to be more effective? And then thinking about people's strengths and, you know, Vicki talks a lot about this at the start of the book about finding your joy. And I think mid-career is a time to revisit that too. Like, what do I love doing? And how can I make that a fulfilling part of the rest of my career? And who do you like collaborating with? I I realize, you know, I love writing with Vicki. We have similar styles and we enjoy doing that. And so creating projects, sometimes it just might fulfill that are important for people to think about. And this idea of self-care, I think especially uh, the last year and a half we've all had with the pandemic uh, brings that maybe to the fore even more. Uh, women, I think, often get called on to do service work and, and, and can be a bit exhausted uh, in a professional setting. And so thinking about what self-care, what rituals, what routines are important to maintain or develop. So it's sort of that environmental scan lets you think about what are my goals and what resources and supports do I have or which were are some areas I'm lacking, so I need to develop. Um, and the other thing I'll mention, Marshall Goldsmith, he he coaches, you know, Fortune 500 CEOs. And and I'm familiar with his work. And I've talked with him before. He, he writes a great book, what, what Got You Here Won't Get You There. And I think that's really quite relevant um, for this environmental scan, because it lets you kind of recognize, okay, maybe what those rules are different. And I need to understand that, do some self-reflection and get what I call stakeholder feedback um about what I need to do to get to that next step.
0: Yeah, I and I remember that from from the book and I I think that's part of kind of you know even the changing you know one of the notes I made is the changing needs your changing mentor needs throughout your career and that goes back to that idea like you said of you know the the people and and the rules that got you to where you are may not be the same people and rules that get you where you want to go. Mm-hmm. Um because the rules and the players change um, And, uh, you know, so I think that was an important, um, an important piece I took, I took away from the chapter as well. Um, so I have been fortunate, um, to have had a lot of great mentors throughout my career. I think that's why I, um, also just really resonate with the idea of mentoring and, and, you know, that's kind of one of the things Christina and I sort of connected on after we first met and, and really was the seed, um, for this, this whole channel, um, and I know now that they were great mentors because after reading your chapter, <laughs> I can see in the chart you have on page 151, um, you cite uh, Johnson and Smith's work and you highlight three areas of support that great mentors offer. Um, and those include psychosocial support, career support and personal growth. Um, and so I was able to say, "Oh yes, you know." I, I so not only did they feel like great mentors, and I think they were great mentors, they actually aligned with uh, with um, you know what the information you offered. So could you talk um, about those areas and provide our listeners maybe with some examples of each of those kinds of support that you're talking about?
1: Yes, and I think um, an overarching way to think about excellent mentoring is um, some of the work that's been done on positive relationships at work that that they are resilient enough that you can come back together after some critical conversations. Because the fact of the matter is, if you're not having some conversations with your mentors, informal or formal, that are pushing you a little bit, then it's it's not as effective as it can be. So that ability to sort of come back, even when you've got some feedback that you're, you know, maybe didn't love, is really important. Another idea that's overarching of, of these three categories is that of openness, so that you know, people are connecting you to new ideas and new people that you wouldn't otherwise perhaps come into contact with or as soon. And so this idea that they're really sort of expanding your horizons is important. And I think a lot of what these three uh, categories talk about is what I would say is emotional tone, Um, this ability to share when things are going really well, um, but also to share when things didn't go so well. And that's, we you know, is really important for high quality mentoring relationships. And when we think about, again, what mentoring is, that career support, that friend-like psychosocial support, and this idea of personal growth, which gets much more in this holistic idea of mentoring. Um, I love what uh, Brad Johnson and his colleague Smith have, have talked about, especially for women. And so as you look at some of these behaviors, you know, listen is important. Um, mentors who are talking half the time or over half the time, it's too much because they're not listening to what the aspirations and goals and hopes are of of the mentee. And that being honest and direct, but unconditionally accepting, that's part of that emotional tone. Like, yeah, maybe that didn't go so well, but it doesn't mean that you're not competent or smart or capable. What, What can we do to make this happen differently next time. So those ideas of that listening and the confidence building, I think is so important, especially for women. Um, I think I share this in the book. When I came here as a new chair, I replaced um, uh, a man who'd been here and it was a department of women. And I'm like, why haven't these women gone up for promotion? And I asked them and they said, well, no one's really encouraged that. So they just thought they should wait till they were encouraged. And so this idea of confidence building and, and telling women, especially you're competent, you belong, um, what's the next step is so important for that psychosocial support. On the career support side, it's this idea of, of having allies that people are putting you forward or, or getting you to think about new opportunities. And sometimes you might need to ask people to support you in this way. I now know to kind of, when I go in a new environment, I'm like, well, who, who could be good allies? Who seem to... Support women um, and yet challenge, um, you know, sort of like what is it that you really want to do? And so, this idea of career support is important, including being a watchdog for disparities at work. And that can be tough for people to say something about that, um, but you might not always be in the room when conversations about you are being had. And so, learning how to identify folks and have conversations and feel that um, they are thinking about equity in terms of salary or promotion or assignments or, you know, there's all kinds of ways resources are allocated in universities, not just salary, making sure that those are are open and fair. And then this idea of personal growth, um, again, you know, who do they want to be as a person? You know, we're, we're more than who we are at work and and how to have that balance and it be um, rewarding and And energizing, not draining. I think is as part of that message about the personal growth. And the one behavior there I'd really like to point out is this: encourage excellence, but challenge perfectionism. Um, I think this is true, maybe of many people in universities and colleges, but I think especially of women. They think it has to be perfect, Um, and well, it needs to be excellent, but maybe ninety-five percent is okay. And really supporting them to know. Just just get it out there. Uh, Sometimes perfection is the enemy uh, of performance. And again, that confidence building, I think, can make a really big difference there. Mm.
0: Those are all great. Um, Thank you. Um, And so sort of on the flip side of great mentoring experiences are not so great mentoring are not so great experiences or what you call dysfunction in mentoring.
1: Can you talk more about
0: what dysfunction in mentoring looks like or feels like?
1: Well, it feels bad. <laughs> so, Pretty much if you're wondering if you, uh, in fact, I had uh, someone that too long ago come to me and said, do you think this person could be, you know, a tormentor?" And I'm like, well, do you feel bad when you talk to them? <laughs> yes. Okay. It may have been. There's no good times. It probably is. We know from research, there's five common sources of dysfunction. The first one is neglect. And I've been guilty of neglect, and and that's why it's so important to be intentional about this. Neglect are things that, you know, if somebody's sitting in your office, you're having a conversation, but you take a phone call, that's neglectful. Unless you told them, hey, I'm expecting an important phone call from my boss, do you mind if I take it? Because they don't know how to interpret that. Being late to meetings or forgetting them if you were going to meet up with someone, that's neglect. Uh, Not being responsive, neglect. And so... If you're getting that a lot, that should be a warning signal. The second most common is mismatch. And that would occur for formal mentoring programs. Um, You know, you sign up thinking this person has some competencies and skills in the area that you are hoping to get some development, but they really don't. Um, Makes you not very invested to want to meet with them. And then they sort of wondering, you know, what's going on here? And just everybody feels vaguely bad about it. Um, There's not that common that there's true manipulation, but unfortunately it does occur. And in some fields, which are more competitive around patents or credit for ideas, um, it, it can happen that people will take credit for your ideas or try to get something published first or take credit, uh, for innovations in teaching, you know, in front of your Dean or provost. So we call those people, the manipulators, um, those behaviors don't change. And I think then the, the important piece to think about are graceful exits. So, if it's in a formal mentoring program, you know, to figure out how to gracefully exit that is important. I once had an IBM executive ask me, um, you know, well, so what if it's some bad mentoring? I mean, it doesn't really hurt anyone, does it? I mean, they just don't go to see that person anymore. And I'm I'm looking at him going, well, there's reputational costs perhaps to bad mentoring, if I just exit a relationship, how am I going to be known? And as an associate professor, you know, these are, we all sort of, you know, they're not big places, you know, your departments I and mean, people are sort of wondering what's going on. And so um, this idea of bad mentoring doesn't hurt, isn't true. It can um, make people not be motivated, not want to uh, be excited about work they're doing. I believe it, um, it trickles down often to how they treat their own students then in the classroom or other mentoring relationships. So I think it can be um, quite negative and can be derailing, um, especially for women, because they just don't want to be there anymore. When we, I've talked to many women, when I ask them, why don't you want to move on to a full professor? They're like, it's not worth it. You know, no one's really supporting me. The bump and pay I would get just isn't uh, enough for me to want to take on, you know, what they perceive as more of the same sort of hassle. So lack of having effective mentors there and envisioning what your career could look like is really problematic. This idea of graceful exits is figuring out how to still have a good relationship with someone who maybe you don't think is a very good mentor to you. And people sometimes need some support to say for a formal program, um, you know, this isn't just what I thought, you know, but to have some closure, to actually have a conversation about it, that leaves people emotionally feeling good and not like some vague neglect or um, it didn't really work all that well. Because what if later that person is going to make a decision about uh, you? You never know. They could be on the university or college tenure committee and, um, and you don't realize that. And so making sure you leave things well, even if you if you exit formal relationships is, is really important and something I've cer- certainly learned to do better, I become more skillful at um as I've moved along in my career too.
0: Thank you. Thank you. Um something I've heard a lot, especially from graduate students or new professionals, relates to the question of well, what do you actually do when you find someone you think you want as a mentor? I mean, you actually address this directly in, in the book. You you talk about a story of, of a woman that you met who was unsuccessful in finding mentors because she was coming on too strong initially. So once she thought that she connected with someone, she immediately asked them to be her mentor. Um, and you offer the analogy um, for this that really resonates. I think we were talking before we started recording that I, I do relationships research. So anytime people use relationship you know, mm-hmm. um, analogies, I, I get it because I live in, in you know, a lot of relationship analogies. And you say doing this is like asking someone to marry you on the first date. Um, it's too much too soon. Um, so from there, you go on to offer steps for what to do when you do connect with someone who you think might be, you know, someone you would add to your mentoring network. So could you talk us
1: through those steps? Yes. And I, I you make me laugh. Cause I remember, I mean, this was a genuine question. I was doing a workshop out in Oregon and, and somebody said, but I I've been trying to find these mentors and it's not working. And so I, I said, well, what are you doing? And out comes this story. And I'm like, well, yeah, that's a that's a bit scary. You know, people aren't sure, "Will you be my mentor?" Well, I don't even know what that means to that person, right? If they're asking you, it just it sounds like a lot and it's easier to say no. Um, I think what really helps people to build their network is to think intentionally about, you know, what what are my goals and and what are the skills I need to accomplish those or who has roles that I think I might like to have one day and then just invite them uh, to meet briefly with you. You know, people often say people are busy, but people like to to share about their own path or how they got there. And I think, um, you know, we're getting back to being able to have sort of coffee or tea dates, but if not a, a Zoom conversation, just to say, could I check in with you about this? I'm thinking about, you know, I have this question. I'd love to get your advice. And so really just sort of starting with a small piece or small request Um, and listening and then following up and and maybe checking in with that person later and and letting them know, you know, here's kind of what I ended up doing. And I really appreciate, you know, you helped me think this through, or I took your advice on this and, you know, this activity um, was was really useful for me to do. I think sort of by then engaging and then sort of asking for feedback lets those relationships naturally and and informally develop. And the other thought is, Maybe sometimes you just need a, a, what I would call a mentoring episode and scholars talk about this you know, micro mentoring and this mentoring episodes. Like, and I have a, a suite of people who I know I could go to if I had this kind of dilemma or that dilemma, but I've invested some time in that relationship to get to know them and, and get some advice from them. Sometimes they may seek advice from me. I always ask, offer, you know, if there's some way I can be helpful. And sometimes people take you up on that. Then it becomes that sort of bi-directional relationship where you could just check in if you've got a quick question and um, it doesn't need to be this long drawn out, you know, six months of meeting. It just might be getting uh, some feedback and having a sounding board. And that's why I like thinking of this mentoring network as a board of advisors sort of. And they don't even need to know they're on your board necessarily, but you've kind of got them there sitting on your shoulder and and they could help you. Um, As you think about navigating, you know, different skills or dilemmas, and and I think for women, learning to ask, really ask for help. We're we're so used to sort of figuring it out and and making the best and moving on, but learning to be a lot more intentional, I think, is part of the message of this chapter as well. Um, And I mentioned in the book sometimes I haven't been as intentional as I should have been, and it probably would have saved me some time had I just slowed down a little bit and gotten. Gotten some advice about decisions, important decisions that I had. So, learning just to sort of naturally let that evolve. Um, and, and you can even reach out to people you really don't know. I mean, Kathy Cram is sort of the godmother of mentoring uh, research. And I remember um, I had a great advisor and he encouraged me to reach out to her when I was doing my dissertation. And, like most graduate students, I'm like, there's no way she's going to write me back. She isn't going to want to talk to me. I'm, I'm nobody. I know nothing. Um, but I was persuaded to finally write her an email and solicit her advice. I kind of said, you know, here's kind of what I'm thinking of doing, you know, if you have any thoughts about this and she did that actually were incredibly helpful. So I think just as simple as that kind of, um, reaching out to people when it's about things they care about, they are happy to engage.
0: Hmm. I love that story. I, um, and I think that's a really valid point that I, also learned, um, but I didn't do it. So I had almost the same story. Um, when I was working on my dissertation, there was a scholar whose work that I, um, I used, and it was actually a, um, sort of a a piece of her finding that was my hole, my gap in the literature um, that, you know, opened the door for my question of my, my whole study, which ended up turning into my book. And that was Donna Freitas. And I've had Donna on the show and we are now friends. Uh, this was years and years ago when I was doing my dissertation. And, and then even when I was working on my, my book initially, I, I had periodically thought, well, that'd be really interesting to like, you know, reach out to her. But I was like, oh, I could never do that. I could never do that. And I didn't, but then she ended up being the reviewer, the blind reviewer on my book. And we, and she ended up emailing me one day and I was like, oh my gosh, you know, I was so like enamored with her work. I'd used her work it was one of the main studies that I based my, you know, uh, research off of. And I was just so like, oh my gosh. And then, and we, now we're friends. I mean, I've had her on the show. We, we meet for coffee. We talk, we talk, we're talking about we research stuff now and we process together and, and I think back of like, wow, I, like, I remember years and years before saying to myself, like, oh, it would be so great to connect with her, but I could never do that, you know? And so um, I hope listeners who are graduate students are hearing this um, from two people who have different experiences with it. I didn't have someone to push me to do it, and I, and I didn't do it, and I wish that I had had years earlier um, because people do love to connect um, over areas that they care deeply about and especially scholarship. You know, we spend years of our lives uh, digging into these topics and these areas and we care deeply about them. So, um, it's always, um, I think wildly fun when people want to talk about it and engage you in it. So I hope graduate students will hear that and, um, and reach out to those, um, to those scholars that they admire. Um, and you never know. I mean, and you never know. I mean, the worst you get is, you don't get a reply or something, but, um, so I hope they will do that. I, I we're getting close on time, but there's one question that I want to make sure that I I do get in, and um, and it's about the uh, the board of advisors as you talk as you call it. So when it comes to building your board of advisors, you have suggestions around number of advisors and the composition of those advisors. Um, could you talk more about that? And I, I I will say I know that you tailor this advice to you know mid level faculty, but this is another area where I feel like even in that even in the composition piece i think that can translate to other um you know other positions staff positions administrative positions and at different levels um i think there is there's definitely a versatility with this um idea of how you how you um make up that board of advisors for yourself
1: well yes and i will i will make it somewhat generic um you know if it's for associate professors you you're going to pick people at your rank. So you could, this would be true for any level that you are. And, and there's some research that suggests four to five people are the right number. That could really be mentoring relationships that you stay in touch with, that they, they kind of know what's going on with you. Um, you might have other people in your network that might not be as close a relation, but they're helping you um, in some particular areas. The, the composition that's shown to be most effective is to have at least two people in your institution and two people outside your institution. And especially for associate professors, this is important when we start to think about tenure and promotion. Um, you need to be able to have networks of people who are outside your institution who might be writing letters about your work. I you know, that process is going to be different at different institutions. Um, but it's, it's really critical to have somebody outside. And then the other way to think of it is somebody at your level and at the level that's above that you wish to reach. So for an associate professor, you'd want to have, you know, someone at your own institution. Uh, who's a peer mentor and someone somewhere else, probably through a professional association like Vicki and I have sort of been peer mentors for each other in many ways. But then you also want um, people who are at the full professor rank. Um, if you're already a full professor and you're thinking of um, moving up to academic leadership, then maybe you'd have somebody in that role. Or if you're an assistant professor, right, you could sort of do the math and you'd have assistant and associate. So having people in and outside your institution at your level and at the level that you wanna be are important. And the fifth person um, would be, if you look at that group of people and they don't share some characteristic that's really important to you, um, maybe that's gender, religion, um, it it could be lots of different um, traits, demographic traits. I really encourage, and the research suggests that you find a fifth person who does have that. Um, So for example, you know, I knew that I might need to navigate some things differently as a female, um, you know, for women who might be making the mid-career, the they probably had their kids, not always early in their career, maybe not. So if you're trying to navigate some of that or some other family responsibilities or just perception, then it's important that you have someone that's that gender. I know for myself, there's not a lot of women in their uh, department chair roles. So I certainly made sure that I have uh, some women that I talk to because a lot of my mentors are men. So just really thinking intentionally about that, that um, the characteristics of those people is important. And it lets people then choose what's important to them. So people often make a lot of assumptions about what's important. Um, but I think you, you have the opportunity and you're building your own board or network to, to sort of think for yourself, what, what is important to me um, and who do I need to really have in that network? So if they lack a demographic characteristic and you need to find someone who shares
0: that. Thank you. Um, so we're getting close to time, but one final question. Um, it's been really wonderful talking with you today, but before we wrap, I I did want to ask you if you could tell us, um, about what you're working on now or future projects.
1: Yeah, I have, um, got a couple kind of exciting projects. I'm pretty excited about one. Um, I'm finishing, I'm hoping to get off to the publisher next week. Uh, a revised a second edition of my handbook on mentoring programs. And I developed that because I found there was very little guidance for people who wanted to set up formal mentoring about how to do so effectively, quickly, and efficiently. And so I'm pretty excited to be finishing that project up, and it'll be out in the fall. And um, I got a Fulbright during COVID. Oh, how about wow. that? So that is. Didn't go anywhere. <laughs> so we have delayed it now to next spring, but that project's on mentoring. So there's... Um, some colleagues in Germany and they have created a global virtual, this is virtual before the pandemic, mentoring uh, network for highly talented students in STEM. And I'm very interested in mentoring training. So this idea of can we improve people's skills? So I'm going to be working with them on um, some qualitative work to look at what are the highly effective relationships because the program will have been going for a year uh, by the time I get there. So I'm pretty excited about, about that project. And the last one is I love looking at destructive leadership. And so this summer I'm finishing up a chapter, um, with my husband, who is also an academic on uh, destructive leadership and, you know, when it goes bad, uh, especially in the academy. So those are mm-hmm. some fun things I've got, I've got in the pipeline.
0: Wow. Those are all great. Thank you so much. And congratulations. That is a huge, um, accomplishment and an honor. So, um, I hope that, I hope that goes well.
1: Thank you. It's been really fun to talk about uh, mentoring and, um, you know, what really matters. And I think, you know, my big message is for people just, just to give it a little time, like give it 10 minutes and be intentional and think about how to be a better mentor to others and, and be intentional about their own support, especially for women who often, um, you know, otherwise might not identify that and, and may have a much more successful career if they can find some allies and mentors.
0: Yes. And I I think that's, um, that's a really important point too. And we can kind of close on that, but I've always felt it important to have mentors and then to be a mentor. And I think, you know, kind of having that bi-directional relationship either way helps you. I mean, being, uh, having a mentor helps you be a better mentor yourself because you know what, you know, um, what it feels like on the other side of that relationship. And I think that's really valuable. So, Um, I hope that this show, um, you know, has been helpful and valuable for our listeners and and hopefully we'll be spurring some more mentoring relationships. Um, Laura, thank you so much for being on the show today and talking with us about your chapter, Mapping Your Your Mentor Network, um, in the newly released book, Charting Your Path to Full. It's been wonderful talking with you.
1: Thank you, Dana.
0: I'm Dr. Dana Malone. This is The Academic Life, and you've been listening to New Books Network. Please join us again.